The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Pinball Tapes. My name is Zach Colligan, and I'm possessed by pinball. If you're listening to this, there's a glimmer of hope that I can instill into you the joy and fascination I get from this kinetic wonder. This is the Pinball Tapes. Well, hello again, my friends. I'm back. <laughs> I'm so pleased that I got a chance to do this again. I mean, to be honest, I was planning on still keeping on and doing my thing, but I am very pleased to announce that the Pinball Network, the ineffable Zach Many from the Pinball Show, which is a great pinball podcast, and the TPN committee have uh, agreed that they'd like me to come back as a regular fixture on the Pinball Network, and I'm absolutely over the moon about it. So thank you very much, uh, committee and many. That's uh, brilliant news. And uh, my plan is to release an episode a month if I can. And, you know, any excuse to ramble on about pinball, that's for sure. I'm in. I'm totally in. And life is sweet. And, of course, a big thanks to all of you, you wonderful legends out there in Silver Ball land. Thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for all the positive feedback. I had some really nice messages throughout the last month, and so uh, it gave me the uh, the fire to come back and do it again. So, what's on the plate this time, my amenable amigos? I'm very excited, oh, you know how I get, to muse on the orange-tinged glory and mechanical brilliance that is 1978's Gottlieb System 1 Sinbad. There are some pretty glorious Godlieb System 1s, to be fair, but Sinbad, whoo-wee. It was released in Feb of 1978, and this beauty sold 12,000 units. Now, that is a staggering amount of machines, and it's also Godlieb's best-ever-selling System 1. And again, for those playing at home, if you want a visual aid, head to the International Pinball Database, or the IPDB, and search for Sinbad, the four-player solid-state version. And there was a suggestion via Zach, the other Zach. It's confusing, I know. There's also a Zach on the Slam Tilt podcast as well. So, yeah, it's funny. There used to be jokes about Jeff in Pinball, but now it's becoming Zach's. Anyway, great name. Love you all, Zach's. The suggestion was to include some links with the show notes, and so I will do that this time around. Well, I'll pass it on to the great Zach Many, and he'll do that for me, and we'll put some notes into the IPDB link to make it easier for all of you to follow along at home. Now, the reason I specifically mention the four players is because the Sinbad actually had two versions of the same game. It's one of those interesting machines that was right on the cusp of solid-state technology coming into the world. And so there's a two-player electromechanical version and a four-player solid-state version. But more on that later. Oh, 
Gottlieb System Ones, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Gottlieb were one of the big three when it came to pinball in the 70s. They were also the first company to mass produce pinball cabinets. The Henry Ford of pinball, if you will. Gottlieb System Ones are an interesting case. As I mentioned in my last podcast, solid state machines are when the microchip took over from miles of cabling that constituted early electromechanical pinball machines. The mechanical units that ran the score rules, etc., were replaced with circuit boards, allowing for a whole new depth to rules and design. Again, I'll call out the wonderful Silver Ball Chronicles here with David Dennis and Ron Hallett. If you wish to learn all about the intricate details and the foibles and slow downfall of the Titan Godlieb, spoiler alert, episode 5 of the Silver Ball Chronicles titled Stepping on Rakes, Godlieb System 1 is where you should go. Also love <laughs> the Simpsons reference in that title. It always makes me laugh thinking of poor old Sideshow Bob constantly stepping on rakes. So Godlieb were unfortunately a bit slow on the take when it came to solid state technology. They also made a big error when it came to their circuit boards. They outsourced the manufacture to an electronics company, while highly skilled in the field knew absolutely nothing about pinball. They developed the System 1 board set as requested, but failed to understand that pinball needs to grow and breathe and live. Designers always want to do more and always push the boundaries. History has shown that time and time again. New innovations need more processing power, but these boards didn't allow for that and hobbled the company as a whole. There are also grounding issues, but that is another story for another time. Despite all of this though, they sold a staggering amount of units and created some of the most mechanically sound machines ever made. The Cadillac of Pinball, if you will. This, uh, <laughs> this phrase came about, uh, there's a very famous designer called Steve Ritchie, who apparently got interested in pinball machines in arcades back in his youth, and there was a tech working on a machine, and he went up to the tech and was chatting with him about what was going on, and the guy said, <laughs> um, if you listen to the um, Silver Ball Chronicles episode, Ron does it really well, it's like, this is a godly, godly bar, the Cadillac of pinball. So hopefully that sums up what to expect when it comes to the beautiful Gottlieb games. To clarify again, Gottlieb be the company and System 1 be the board set, or the set of circuit boards that run the game. System 1s are a divisive make and model of pinball machine. Some love them, some hate them. I am firmly placed in the former category, and the reasons are many. Primarily, as I briefly mentioned in a previous episode, I'm an amateur pinball restorer. I love finding old and unloved machines, pulling them apart, cleaning, waxing, repairing unrepairable elements, putting new rubbers on, cleaning and adjusting switches, etc, 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 etc. Till at last you finally put it all back together. One of my great joys in life is not knowing much about a pinball machine. Now when I say that, I do a fair bit of research, so I've, I kind of know what I'm up for, but if I've decided upon the machine, I'm committed. I don't worry too much about learning much about the gameplay before I put it all back together and that's part of the fun of the exploration is when you finally get all the pieces clean put it all back together and actually start playing it and then it just presents itself to you it's a wonderful wonderful time to be had so my bag isn't about making it look like a brand new machine but making it function like a new one a very important point to bring up here is the concept of actually playing the heck out of your newly reconditioned machine 
It's amazing how many minor issues arise when you finally get a machine up and running with strong and responsive flippers. Often it may be as simple as a post ripping loose that hasn't been pummeled in years. Or an insert that has either risen or sunk, causing the ball to swirl around in a wacky trajectory. Only by actually putting the machine through its paces, hours on end, do these minor issues come to light. So basically, I just (laughs) can't relax until all the matters are ironed out. And then, when that time comes, oh, fraptious day. When it comes to details, I'm usually unconcerned about the condition of the cabinet unless it's absolutely knackered. If this sort of thing keeps you up at night, however, there are many methods available to fix clapped out cabinets, but I've yet to meet a cabinet that made me take this leap. One of these days, I'm sure I'll find a bargain machine that desperately requires some cabinet attention, but until then, my focus is on the world under glass. I feel that to fully appreciate a machine, you have to get the gameplay happening as the designer intended. If you really want to feel and understand what the game is trying to do, you have to get the playfield humming and the ball bouncing and rolling around like the machine was just unboxed. Well, or as close to, considering some of these games are 30, 40 years old, etc. It's amazing what a difference this makes when you properly recondition a machine and most importantly clean and wax the playfield. The game becomes the challenge that it's supposed to be. I'm sure there's lots of very unloved pinball machines out there that have been played by people who either thought that's a terrible game or pinball sucks and it's all because the game is not in good condition. All it takes is somebody to love that game and then bring it into its best light. And what I like too, I like getting to the point where it is operator error. So (laughs) the machine is working perfectly, so it's all down to you to play properly, and then you can present it to the noob or the pinball enthusiast, and if they don't like it, then they're never going to like it. So getting it back up to speed is really my bag. So why do I have such a deep and profound affection for this particular era of machine? For me, a very good reason to love these games is that they are an amateur restorer's best pal. I'll never forget a discussion I had years ago with a local pinball tech who talked with such reverence about System 1s, saying how excellent their mechanisms were. And I absolutely concur. These games are built like a tank, solid and reliable. They are renowned for having the best drop targets ever. And I had the experience of restoring a Godlieb System 1 pinball pool And messing around with the target banks on that was like dealing with an engine of a car. (laughs) I had to actually strap the thing and hang it off the underside of the playfield to fix it because there were so many wires attached. I didn't want to disassemble all of it, so I kind of took half the wires off, and usually that's enough to get a mechanism off the underside of a playfield, but not this one. So yeah, quite incredible, these mechanisms. One of the reasons I think they are so reliable is because there is absolutely no BS when it comes to gameplay. All of the system ones I have played reset everything between each ball. Now that's not a very new concept, and in fact, electromechanical games, usually as a rule, would do that. So between every ball, there's no memory retention. Basically, you get what you get on a ball, and then the whole game resets, and you start again each ball, 
just like you're walking up to it and pressing start for the first time. There is no CPU memory retention between balls like on System 11s. No holding over bonuses or points. You're basically starting from scratch each time. Unless, of course, you've replaced the brains of the machine. But more on that later. So when the ball drains, you're given any bonuses you've accrued on that ball and everything go back to square one. I really quite admire this type of game. Sure, it makes them hard in comparison to contemporary games, but the objective is clear, defined, and completion seems tantalisingly within your reach. In the conversation with his tech also, he further went on to advise to take all the original boards and throw them in the bin. <laughs> Which seems a bit extreme. But you know what? This is where the System 1 machines fall short. The boards for these games, as I briefly mentioned earlier, especially the power board, are notoriously troublesome, riddled with grounding issues and difficult to fix. When I repair a game that doesn't have the option of replacement boards and are looking very unloved, I defer to the experts and send them away to be fixed. I have a very basic knowledge of board repairs, usually enough to get things going again, but when it comes to poor old things that haven't been used for decades, it's always worth spending the money to get them properly fixed. I'll give a shout out here to the legendary Ken, aka Skybo from the Aussie Arcade Forum. When it comes to boards, Ken is the man. I cannot recommend his work enough. And specialised texts like this should never be underappreciated, especially when they are still actively working in the industry. We are so lucky to have people like Ken working on outdated technology like this. His fine work means we can all revitalise the past and preserve these relics for years to come. I've sent him some very difficult patients over the years, and he's always managed to bring them back to life. Hasn't lost one. And I can't understate the importance of knowing your boards aren't the problem when troubleshooting a machine. That makes life so much easier, because then you know the problem lies in the mechanisms or the switches, rather than the actual brains of the machine doing something odd. In saying all of that though, the beauty of the robust and hardy System 1 machines is that you have the option to replace all the boards in one fell swoop. And that's actually what that tech was talking about. There are a few companies out there that make replacement boards for these old beauties, but not all makes a retro pinball machine have replacement boards. For a reason I do not have an answer for, a great business in France called Pascal Hanin, or Janin, I think it's Hanin, happens to make replacement boards for System 1 machines. Pinball scene in France at some stage, and maybe still is, I'm not really sure. If there are any French listeners, please write in and let me know, because I'd be fascinated to know why this particular company came about, and just about the pinball scene in France in general. It sounds exotically wonderful. So there are three main boards in the System 1. The power supply, the driver board, and the MPU. Though you are able to replace all three boards individually from different sources, and that's what I mistakenly did the first time I worked on the Sinbad many, many years ago, Pascal makes an amazing product that is an all-in-one board replacement. As the name suggests, you literally remove all the old boards and replace them with a brand new sweet board that is superior and safer in every way. This magic piece of technological wonderment is called the PI-1x4. There is also a board that just replaces the MPU, called the PI-1, if you want to save a few bucks. If you replace all the boards with the PI-1x4, 
It means that you don't have to worry about the brains and the heart of your game for years to come. They aren't super cheap though. At this point in time, they come in at around 600 bucks Australian dollars delivered. But in my opinion, it's well worth the money. And I just factor this into the budget whenever I'm looking to do up a machine. And speaking of batteries, as a side note, corrosion on circuit boards from leaking batteries is one of the worst things that can happen to them. Oh, it's circuit board death. It was common for manufacturers to attach AA-sized batteries directly to the boards, and they didn't age well, leaking their poisonous innards all over the brains of the machine. As a rule, you should always replace these with either a AA battery pack that sits off the board, or even better, a little watch battery. The Pascal Hanin boards have a fancy internal battery that supposedly lasts for at least a decade, and I don't really want to think about what that's made out of. Another great benefit is that, if you so desire, you can add extra features to the rules of the game, fix some bugs in the programming, and add lighting effects. The lighting effects, for my money, are the best additional feature you can have. It's amazing what a difference it makes to the visual experience when a light flashes instead of being steadily lit. Also, improving the light show before every ball and enhancing the attract mode make these games far more appealing. For the purists, you can actually set these boards to have none of the extra features, but in my opinion, the more interesting the lighting is on a game, the better. So let's talk about the art. Now, I love the art for these games. There's this theme of orange across all of the ones I've seen, and I think it's across them in general, and they are just beautifully put together. The artist is Gordon Morrison. I don't know too much about him particularly, but he, <laughs> looking on the IPDB, he did the art, at my count, for at least 149 Gottlieb games. Now, that is just <laughs> mind-boggling. I mean, I know... The vibe in the 70s was they were pumping out games. Like all manufacturers were smashing them out. But the fact that Gordon Morrison, and he seems to be paired with the designer for this game as well, Ed Krinsky, a legendary designer. He did everything from uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind to um, another absolute classic System 1, which is seen as one of the best ones, perhaps even over Sinbad, called Joker Poker. And he seems... It seems that Gordon Morrison and Ed Krinsky were paired together for all of these games. Now, I'm going to mention the side of the cabinet uh, because it's a great stencil of Sinbad bringing his sword down and creating sparks with an explosion with a few different layers of colour. And <laughs> on my copy, some despicable little buggers have uh, scratched around Sinbad's turban and written um, F.U.K. Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as I hate those little bastards, I kind of love history like that. It marks a time and a place when it was in an arcade, when some kids decided just to scratch around it. And, you know, sure, I could fix that, but I don't know. Maybe one day. So the colour palette for this game is kind of orange, yellows and pink tones. And... What I really like about the System 1s that I've seen is that the game lights up one of the best rewards you can get, and that's the extra ball, and it's always pink. Now, normally, extra balls are red on the games I've experienced, and I love this little element to the game. It just makes you really susceptible 
to pink colours when you play System 1s. You know if you see a pink colour, a pink light come up somewhere that you're really doing good things and you're going to be rewarded. I like that. It's like when you get through the maze and push a little lever and get the cheese. If you see a pink light, you know, I'm doing well. And I love that element to a game. Now to the back glass. The back glass is excellent. Beautifully framed picture. As far as back glasses go, this is actually a back glass as well, I should mention. I talked about in my last podcast the difference between trans light and a back glass. A trans light essentially being plastic and or acrylic and a back glass being just that glass. Now this is a, an actual back glass, this one. A screen printed glass. And to be honest, I find these very stressful to move around. I've got a uh, Stern Electronics game that I'll talk about another stage. And you have to take the back glass out if you want to get to the circuit boards. And it's always so stressful because, you know, they're really hard to find these back glasses, if you can find them at all. Some places do uh, repro ones. If you drop these on the ground and smash them, I mean, that's that. I'm always very careful. The beauty of the System 1 games is they're actually encased within a hinged door, which is a brilliant design feature. So you don't have to remove it if you don't want to. You literally just open the door to get to the circuit boards. These back glasses, unfortunately, though, notoriously suffer from flaking paint. Many of them are way beyond help because the paint is flaked away in a devastating fashion. Personally, I've yet to successfully find a good way of repairing these. Actually, painting on the back of an image is the classic method. But I've yet to see a great example. I'm sure there's people out there who can do it. Because the issue you face is you not only have to match the colour of old paint that's from the 70s, you also have to match the translucency of the paint. And not being an artist whatsoever, a visual artist, I have no concept about mixing paints, etc, etc. And when it comes to these back glasses, because they're lit from behind, it's really, really difficult to match up the tone of the original colour. I mean, it can be done, but it takes a bit of artistic skill and something I don't really possess, I'm afraid. If you've got a game, for example, you don't have a back glass or you destroy your back glass, is to print out a whole new image on acrylic backing. And that's a pretty good option if your glass is trashed. But if avoidable, you're better off dealing with it as it just wouldn't be the same. Especially wouldn't be with a mirrored back glass. And as the name suggests, it's printed on a mirror. So all the spots where there isn't art is actually reflecting back on you, which is a thing of beauty. I actually haven't done this yet, as the back glasses I've owned weren't too bad. The Sinbad is a bit of flaking, but nothing too major. And the reason the paint flaked off was because back in the arcades, they were left on for hours and hours and days on end. And they actually had, as opposed to LED bulbs, they had the old incandescent ones. And what it would do would heat up and the paint would dry and crack and flake off. Now, one of the things I recommend to do, and I know lots of other people I've talked to and I've met some great collectors who do the same thing, is to seal the back glass when you get it. If you get a back glass that is in reasonably good condition, I mean, either way, even if it's really trashed, I guess it's worth doing, a good thing to do is to seal the back of it so that no more paint can flake off. A good way to prevent further peeling is to seal the rear of the glass with something. I've seen everything from good old school contact to clear coat spray. For this one personally, I took a terrifying risk. My father-in-law is a picture framer, and not only does he acquire excellent playfield glass for me, something I always replace from reconditioning a machine, but just a side note on that, always do it as your very, very last thing. Because when you recondition a machine, you're always going to take the glass in and out 500 times. I didn't make the mistake of putting new glass on too early, but I did have glass sitting around too early once in my crowded shed and managed to chip it before I put it on the machine, which was devastating. And it's amazing what a difference a brand new sheet of glass does. Back to my father-in-law, he 
has a hot press that basically you can put something in with kind of a contact like plastic over it and it actually melts it onto it. So I decided to take a punt, this is a few years ago now, and give that a go. And the main concern there was that as the press heats up, it kind of puts pressure on the actual glass itself. So I was just worried it might crack it. And what we did is, um, he's really good at this sort of thing. So we tried it, we incrementally increased pressure and the heat. And you know what? It worked pretty damn well. The only issue I slightly had was that it crinkled a bit so that in the display windows for the scores, there was actually a bit of wrinkling you could see like, you know, like you haven't put the the contact on properly. I've actually since done this again and we found a method of making that go away by putting a bit of cardboard over the score holes. That worked really well and it has preserved it. I've got no reason to take it out, so I'll just leave it there forevermore unless it gets really bad and I really start to hate it. So let's talk about the back glass itself. Now, I love the back glass. I think it's a thing of beauty, and Gordon Morrison's efforts in general over these years were just fantastic. Um, what have we got? We've got a cacophony of smoke and what looks to be blue wizard flames with a beautiful mix of greens, yellows, dark pinks, and oranges all flowing all over the place. And we've got the characters on the back glass. So on the left-hand side, we have the evil witch Zenobia, and below her is Minoton, the um, bronze colossus <laughs> that she uh, makes in the film. And I found it quite amusing because she actually puts a heart of gold in him. So it's literally a clockwork heart made of gold. I'm sure there's some inner meaning for that. But uh, yes, anyway, he definitely didn't have a heart of gold. And on the right-hand side, we've got the obviously swashbuckling Sinbad. And behind him is Princess Farah who is drawn in the film as quite a simpering character. Uh, I must admit the depiction of women in this film was not the best. I mean, Queen Zenobia had her strong moments, but Princess Farah was not given a very strong role. I can tell you that for free. Something that I didn't quite understand. I was convinced that the character up the very, very top, the goat evil-looking dude on the plinth above the smoking cauldron of red flames... I thought he was Minoton, basically the henchman that Witch Zenobia brings to life, but he's not. And so I don't really know whether he came into the film at all or she up the top. I'm not really sure what that goat looking guy at the top is. And also Witch Zenobia has a massive snake like sort of rearing over the top of her head that's kind of got a bit of a Disney-esque character to it. It looks a little bit cartoonish. That wasn't in the film either. So I find it really interesting that representing the film as a whole on the back glass, Gordon Morrison just decided to add elements himself. I mean, maybe he felt it balanced out and looked, you know, reasonably um, wizard-like or witch-like, if you will. It's just an interesting thing to do. It's all of a sudden throw in elements that weren't in the film because there were lots of different things in the film. The Ray Harryhausen effects, there was kind of like these skeletal fleshy beings that Sinbad was fighting at the very beginning of the film, which was amazing. And yeah, all sorts of things, but they decided to add two elements to it that had nothing to do with the film itself. But anyway, interesting choices. So, what are my descriptions of what's going on there? We've got Sinbad, of course. 
Oh, he's swashbuckling. He's a good-looking dude, looking dashing, ready for a melee, and hand held up, ready to repel Witch Zenobia's spell, which I don't think she cast in the film, but that's the vibe. He's got a bejeweled sword at the ready and a dagger tucked in his belt of his orange pants. He's got a fabulous shirt on, my word. Tell you what, big yellow number with droopy sleeves and a spectacular wide orange collar. And it's just low enough to accentuate his hairless chest. Speaking of hair though, how about that perfect goatee? And beautifully chiseled beard, fully replete with a red turban. He definitely looks the part. Now Princess Farah. She stands behind Sinbad, one hand gently resting on his arm, seemingly hoping for protection. She's got a, a lovely looking bejeweled belt and some sort of cloak happening that is hinted behind her legs, but not much else. She's basically wearing a red bikini. And you would think by looking at it, it's the classic 70s scantily clad woman on the back glass number, which I guess it is. But at the same time, she's dressed like that almost throughout the whole film. Her costumes um, in all sorts of areas, especially the desert, are not really designed to be on an adventure. But um, again, all down to the director and casting. And we have Zenobia, the evil witch. On the back glass, she's casting a spell by the looks of things with a spark at her fingertip, summoning blue-flamed-like spells. I was actually waiting for some sort of blue-flame spell, and I think at the very, very end of the film, there's blue flames kind of flying around the place for the uh, under the aurora borealis in the Pyramid of the Four Elements. Very exciting stuff. Her flowing red cloak is hemmed with beautiful and intricate woven patterns. She has a pink undercoat with excellent hemming also, I've got an eye for Hemming, with pink hair and eyebrows that she did not have in the film, but she does look very evil indeed. And kneeling down next to the evil witch Zenobia is Minoton, the bronze colossus. He's in a kneeling fighting stance, but he's kind of aiming his spear at uh, the ground or Sinbad's shin, so he doesn't look too intimidating there, but maybe he's being pious to his witch. He looks like he means business, that's for sure, and he hardly has any clothes at all. Discreet battle gear on, a loincloth, and a sweet red medallion around his neck. And then finally, we have the snake. The snake that was not in the film, but does look kind of cool. It's a giant green and yellow snake looming over the top of the witch, and obviously on her side, hissing at our protagonist, who was ready to fight them all, despite the dangers he's facing. One brave, hairless man. And what about the playfield? The playfield is an absolute thing of beauty. It's um, It's got a really great portrait of Sinbad down the bottom right-hand corner. A really excellent detailed head of Sinbad. It's just done beautifully. It's got a blue turban on with a, a jeweled pin in the middle of it. He's got excellent chiseled features and a, it looks like he's wrapped in a cloak because his beard's a little bit squared off. <laughs> and he's kind of looking up towards the bonus tree. In general, the playfield has got such beautiful colouring to it. You've got your oranges and your blues and your yellows and your reds, kind of mauve reds. It's the same colour as things on the back glass. But what I love about the playfield is there's so much movement. There's like smoke and flames and swirling masses of colour. It's just beautifully done. And one of the features in the game that I'll talk about a bit later is the bonus tree that obviously builds up from 1,000 points to 10,000 points. So there's 10 lights that light as you climb up the bonus tree when you do certain things. And that's all set on a bejeweled sword, which looks amazing. And it's got a lovely, almost like um, bird-like handle at the very end of it. It's a stunning piece of art. And what else have you got? You've got the Playfield Plastics as well. You've got Sinbad on the left looking wonderful with his red 
red turban and excellent features and of course a nice big gold earring as the exotic uh, sailor of the seas would and at the top right I believe it must be Princess Farah again up there because that's his love interest in the film she's staring off into the distance he's looking longingly up kind of towards her and all the colours are organised really beautifully absolute wonder indeed Now, I'm probably going to disappoint a few people here. I got some really lovely feedback from everyone about my last episode, and a couple of my friends particularly mentioned they liked this section with the music. Now, unfortunately, as I prefaced with my last episode, the music on Sinbad is not the best. If you like the sound of bloops, then you'll love it. And it's funny, I do find when you play these games, I don't sit there thinking, oh, it's terrible. I'm very used to it now, and also... The blooping sound that you get when you basically get the jackpot, which is just like bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> you learn to really love that sound and really appreciate it. Because I should explain, in this era, because they were switching over from electromechanical to solid-state pinball machines, the electromechanical machines had chimes in them, which I'll talk about in another podcast because they are a fascinating topic. I love the idea of chimes. Anyway, so what they did is they introduced these soundboards and all they could do was go bloop, 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 and that's about the size of it. There was a few different tones that are spread out throughout the machine, but um, unfortunately for a lot of these Gottlieb System 1s, and I think all of the System 1s, aside from the ones that had chimes originally, of course, had this soundboard, and it did not do them any favours. So the musical sounds from this one won't be so great. Let's talk about what makes this such a unique and wonderful game. What's the main thing that comes to mind? Well, from a very quick glance at the playfield, the most obvious and startling feature is the presence of not one, but two inline flippers. With inline flippers, you essentially have two flippers on each side. The extra flipper is placed directly behind the standard flipper with its tip touching the back end of the standard one. Now, double inline flippers are rarely seen outside the 70s. Some games have one set of inline flippers, but Sinbad went the whole shebang and decided to put them on both sides. With the addition of this mind-bending feature comes the removal of some other features. On Sinbad, we don't have lanes or bumpers around the flipper area. To explain bumpers, they are switch-activated kicking mechanisms that repel the ball sideways when their switches are activated. Sideways ball action is the enemy of the pinballer. This is where your problems often begin and end very quickly with the ball going straight down the middle or flying down the out lanes to pinball hell. So basically we have two sets of double flippers with the out lanes to the far left and right. The real kicker with this setup is he can lose the ball between the freaking flippers. <laughs> this demoralizing action is called being scissored, and it is a brutal, stressful, but awesome element to the unique gameplay of Sinbad. A story that always comes to mind when I'm playing Sinbad and I ever get scissored. I was at a competition at a guy's house many, many years ago, and he'll know who I'm talking about if he listens. He owns his own Sinbad. And it was in the competition. And it was just in his house. And I happened to be walking past him when he was playing. And he said, scissored? I haven't been scissored in years. (laughs) 
It's unfortunate what happens when you play games in competitions. So even if it's your own game in the competition, when it comes to the competitive mindset, it can just change everything for you. <laughs> I always think about that. So how do we deal with them? Well, I personally treat them like two large flippers and let the ball bounce from one to the other. There are a couple of techniques at play here. Primarily, the attitude that inaction is better than constant action. I think of myself as perhaps a slightly above average player, but I am no means an expert. From my amateur observations, it seems that the overall approach to pinball glory is to intensely watch what the ball does and only flip when the opportunity arises or danger presents itself. This as opposed to flip every time the ball comes near the flippers approach of inexperienced players or chimp flipping, I believe that's called. You've got to remember, a lot of the time you can't influence how the ball moves around the inside of the machine. So there is no point frantically flipping around or unnecessarily shoving the machine. This type of careful observation takes nerves of steel but will gain you the advantage of slowing the game down and perhaps even giving yourself a moment to aim and or nudge the ball out of danger. It's also worth mentioning here, an incredibly useful and essential arrow to have in your pinball quiver is called the dead drop pass, which is basically what I'm talking about. A dead drop pass is an inactive maneuver where you simply let the ball hit one flipper and bounce to the other without flipping at all. So the ball can come rocketing from the back of the play field, but if you can see it's going to hit on one flipper cleanly, it also is about judgment of velocity and whether it's going to hit it in the right spot, etc, etc. But... This is another skill that requires some patience and composure. You have to be sure that the ball has enough inertia to make it to the other flipper and that it's on the right angle. The huge advantage this gives you straight away is changing the velocity of the ball. By simply not flipping, the speed of the oncoming ball is slowed immensely and, if executed properly, delivered to the opposing flipper with plenty of time for a well-timed and deliberate shot. One of the unique problems you face with this on the Sinbad is that the ball can land right in the middle where the two inline flippers meet. If this happens, the ball unceremoniously rockets down the drain, leaving you little if any time for recovery. It's also worth mentioning the delightful interplay that happens between the two inline flippers right next to each other. This configuration also is great for flipper training. I've had this sentiment echoed to me by some great players. If you can get good at Sinbad, you can get good at almost any game. On top of all that, the flipper gap is also worth mentioning. Over the years, the gap between the flippers has thankfully got smaller. There are exceptions, I'm sure. But as a general rule, the older the game, the larger the flipper gap. If you look at some of the electromechanical games of yore, the gap is huge. Almost enough to fit two balls side by side, or maybe it can. The attitude I adopt with these older games is you have to keep the ball out of trouble as there is a definitive straight down the middle or SDTM shot where there is almost nothing you can do. System 1's have a pretty damn decent gap and you really have to be on your toes. There is no room for casually flipping around in a relaxed manner. It's always a battle and a true test of nerves. Two magnificent lures to keep you coming back for more. And in fact, as an aside here, I'll mention... My poor old Sinbad has a hole drilled between the flippers where somebody, and I think they know who they are, put a post in because they were like, oh, this game's too hard. And oh, 
it breaks my heart. And there's only so much you can do about that because it went straight through some of the artwork. And when I got the machine, I looked, there was a post there and I thought, that doesn't seem right to me. And sure enough, I checked on the IPDB, International Pinball Database, at pictures of the Sinbad and also looked further afield at some other references. And it definitely didn't have a center post. So the first thing I did was take it out. And sure, it makes the game a lot harder, but that's how it was designed. Oh, can't believe they did that, but that's okay. You do you, guys. So, gameplay. Woo-wee! The old System 1, hey? It is a very, very tough game to break down into gameplay. So, as I mentioned earlier, you approach a System 1 knowing you have to do the same thing and will start at the same place on each ball. Your aim is to always clench tightly and keep the ball alive for as long as possible. But it's good also to keep in mind that you don't have to be concerned if you fail dismally on some balls. There is a tournament term that comes to mind here, and that term is a house ball. This is a devastating moment where you plunge and then unceremoniously lose the ball with nary a flip in sight. It's obviously quite demoralising and can really make the casual player feel like they have absolutely no skills whatsoever. What I want all of you to keep in mind is that in pinball, this happens to everybody. And this was actually a real revelation to me. I haven't watched heaps of high-level tournaments, but some of the best in the world get house balls in live stream big comps quite regularly. Mastering the art of pinball is not about magically avoiding this situation all the time. It's similar to life. When you've been dealt a blow, you dust yourself off and get back on the horse. The great players don't let house balls rattle them. They understand that it's the sum of its parts that will win the day. The collective score, especially on System 1s. Sure, some games can be won with a sublime ball. Those mystical moments when you see everything happening a second or two before it does. All your shots hit their targets. But as Tom Waits said, A love like ours, my dear, is best measured when it's down. It's what you do with the lemons that counts. So let's talk strategy. I'd actually be really interested to hear back from fellow Sinbad parents out there about this section. One thing very important to mention is that different copies of the same game can behave very differently indeed. I had a dude play my Sinbad when it was on site at the Jade, and I believe I haven't mentioned the Jade this episode, which is the bar that my wife and I run at 142 to 160 Flinders Street, Adelaide, with the Cyclone on site. Please come on down. But I digress. This gentleman came in and played my Sinbad, and he actually said it rolled differently from his friend's copy. I also had a similar experience at a comp where I thought it was a good idea to play Sinbad, as I was very familiar with the game. It proved to be a big mistake and it absolutely kicked my butt. It definitely felt different to my baby. Sinbad is really an opportunistic game based around mini strategies as opposed to an overall strategy for the game as a whole. There is no real definitive way to approach the Sinbad. I have ascertained this from personal experience, but this has also been echoed from a couple of different sources. A heavy hitting example comes from the great Bowen Kerens, a legendary US pinball player who has a number of excellent and comprehensive tutorials on YouTube. 
I would highly recommend checking out Bowen's tutorials. He's amazing that he can run you through a game and essentially achieve the wizard mode while talking to you about it. It's incredible to watch. I obviously realize he may have taken a few takes to do it, but the way he presents it is quite amazing to watch. His Sinbad tutorial begins with him basically saying he isn't going to aim for anything in particular, but play the game as it presents itself. And that is very telling from a player of his stature. Usually his tutorials are like, right, this is what you need to do. This is the order you should do it, but not with the Sinbad. Oh, no, my word. So what do we do? Primarily, the aim of the Sinbad is simple. There are four banks of drop targets, 10 drop targets in total. Hit them all down, you get big rewards. They're color-coded, and each set gives you a different multiplier, multiplying your bonus by either two times, three times, four times, or five times. Now, I explained bonuses in the last one, and bonuses are essentially points that you build up throughout the game by doing certain things. Now, with the Sinbad, I don't aim for things that do bonuses. They just kind of happen as you are getting the drop targets. So this builds up to a big score, and then you can get multipliers of the bonuses when you hit down the drop targets. So it sounds very simple, huh? Hit the targets, get the rewards. But oh my word, one thing that Sinbad is not that is simple. It's amazing to me that such minute off-kilter geometry make this game so tough, but still leave you wanting more. So let's break it down to the five main drop target banks, or five mini strategies, and begin at the beginning. So the white target. Located on the left of the playfield, this singular target is the linchpin of the whole apple cart. The kicker with the entire rule set on Sinbad is that you need to knock the previous target down to get the rewards of the next set. Or in simpler terms, you hit the white target down, you get two times your bonus. On the other side of the coin, you can hit down all the other nine targets, which should give you a handsome reward of five times your bonus. But if you don't knock that white one down, you won't get any more than a two times bonus and all that effort is wasted. I've read many descriptions of Sinbad and it seems that the white target is the most elusive one of all. Nothing can crush a person more than dropping the rest of the pack and then draining horribly without showing Whitey who's boss. Oh, it's brutal. It's funny, when you talk about Sinbad and you remember doing that, <laughs> I know I was being slightly theatrical there, but you do remember the anguish. Oh my gosh. So the safest way to eliminate the white target is from the left-hand upper flipper. So as we mentioned, you've got two flippers each side. They're in line, so they line up with each other. So my advice is to go from the upper left flipper. You can stall the ball on the upper left and right flippers of the Sinbad, but it's a hard one manoeuvre. If you can cradle the ball on the upper left flipper, a deft and light shot straight up can just graze it. But it's hard not to hit a little mini post next to the stand-up target that blocks your shot. If you do hit that mini post, death is never far away. If you're feeling brave, you can actually achieve the white target from the lower right flipper by letting the ball roll all the way down to the tip of the lower right and whacking it across. This is not really recommended, however, as it's fraught with peril. I find on my copy that I get a bit of flipper hop too when the ball rolls over the gap between the inline flippers. Flipper hop is basically when a ball jumps a little, rolling down towards a flipper. It usually happens between a wire ball guide and a flipper, but the good old Sinbad's inline flippers causes a brand new problem. Now, I will adhere that it may be an issue with the orientation of my flippers, 
And to be honest, at this point, they are absolutely due for a rebuild, which I'll be doing over the next few weeks. But they look pretty level, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if the Sinbad had this trick up its sleeve. This seemingly insignificant motion makes a huge difference to the timing of a shot and can also add a little bit of velocity to the ball, making it hard to execute. One constant on the Sinbad in Ghostbuster terms is to never cross the streams. Or what I mean by that is cross playfield shots. So going from the right flipper to a target on the left or the left to target on the right, etc, etc. Cross playfield shots are extremely satisfying, but definitely not recommended as a rule with all targets on the Sinbad. If you nail the target with a cross playfield shot, you might be okay. But once you start hitting the space where the targets once were, that, my friend, is where you begin to unravel. Now, the next set of targets the two yellow targets. The yellow twins give you a three times bonus if you've hit the white target down before, of course, or afterwards, and are the most dangerous blighters in the game. They are located almost directly in the middle of the game, about halfway up, but ever so slightly to the left, and they are not to be messed with. Right flipper shots are not recommended unless you are feeling reckless. The lower left flipper is your answer here. The most satisfying completion of these two yellow magnificent bastards is to hit them both in one shot. It takes a bit of luck and skill, but if you manage to clip them in the gap directly between them, they'll both go down at once and exit the game with no further ado. If struck too hard, however, there is every chance the ball goes straight down the middle. Just as an aside, usually on a game with drop targets, there is a rubber directly behind them that is only exposed once the targets are hit down and disappear under the playfield. And as mentioned before, once you start hitting balls at places where targets ain't, you ain't gonna be round long, son. The yellow targets are the most ferocious when it comes to this. Middle to hard shots, where they once inhabited, end in your untimely demise. lot are the purple targets. Ah, the purple targets. These four beauties are my favourite. Located on the far right of the playfield, just slightly off being directly horizontal to your flippers. And I should note that I haven't mentioned that the white, yellow and purple targets are all in a line in the middle of the playfield but they are all just off being horizontal, which is a really interesting design aspect, which I think really adds to their allure. The purple targets are not only home to some of the safer shots in the game, but knocking them down gives you a four times bonus and lights the extra ball, which is a real feat in itself in Sinbad. Getting an extra ball is a big deal. To reiterate though, you only get the four times bonus if you have completed the white and yellow targets as well. So why do I adore these purple perils? On my copy of the game, you are able to achieve some wonderful ball stalling action on the right flipper, and if lucky, can cleanly pick them all off without too much fuss. What I do is I try and stall the ball on the top right flipper, 
and lightly flick the ball up to hit one or two at a time. If the ball drops down to the lower flipper while you're holding the button in and it isn't moving too fast, you can sometimes flick it back up at the targets or at least get it back to the top flipper. you note the words sometime and if <laughs> in those last sentences. But if you can keep the ball calm and lightly pick off these targets, the satisfaction is immense because it's a real moment when you can calm the game down. So the final piece of the puzzle on this road to kinetic glory are the four red drop targets up the back left-hand side of the machine. Unlike the other banks, these beauties are set perpendicular to your flippers. Well, close to perpendicular, but not quite. Once again, Ed Krinsky creating a design that is just slightly off being what you'd hope it would be, which adds to the whole mystery of this game. Now I must admit that I don't usually sweep these targets, but I get the feeling I really should be doing that. When I say sweep, I mean to knock them all down in one shot, with the ball essentially rolling along the face of them. And sweeping drop targets in general is an incredibly satisfying manoeuvre. The reason I know that this should be a thing is because the great Bowen Kerens, the US player who does his tutorials, mentioned in his tutorial for Sinbad that sweeping these targets is the most satisfying shot in pinball. <laughs> Again, when great players make blanket statements like that, it's definitely worth paying attention. So these Red Devils are the final battle. The last things you achieve to get you five times your bonus. Reset the whole bank of ten and give you a glorious run of bloops that you'll be conditioned to love as much as a symphony. You of course need to have achieved the white, yellow and purple etc 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 to cash in the jackpot or cash in your bonus if you will. I find the best flipper for these is the bottom left or even the bottom right. They are usually a pretty safe shot because they are essentially located in the upper section of the playfield near the pop bumpers. When the ball ends up in this section it mostly ricochets around in the pop bumpers for a while ending up on the other side of the spinner and this can be a frustratingly slow delivery to the flippers. And while we're talking about spinners, I should mention that while Gottlieb were the king of drop targets, their spinners are terrible. There is apparently nothing you can do to a Gottlieb spinner to make it fly around like a similar era Stern Electronics spinner. Stern Electronics machines as a whole were cheaply made, but their spinners are amazing. I heard Ron Hallett and Bruce Nightingale of the Slam Tilt podcast talking about how about how their stern electronic spinners can spin up to 43 times in one shot. <laughs> and that is just mind-boggling. But the Godlib spinners are big and plastic and don't give you much spinning action at all. When I first acquired the Sinbad, my generous mate Nick has essentially permanently loaned this one to me, I'll admit. Many kisses to you, Nick, if you're listening, mate. So when I first acquired the Sinbad... The spinner was a panther, which is actually incorrect. Little details like this get under my skin, and so I attempted to find a correct replacement. And I found that these are basically unobtainium, and I'd all but given up hope until my amazing wife Naomi surprised me on a birthday with the correct one. The correct spinner has a sword either side of it, angled in opposite directions. So when spinning, they look like dueling swords. 
which is a really neat effect. And I'm pleased no end to have the correct piece, but you unfortunately get hardly any time to enjoy it because it just won't spin that much. And as I mentioned before, with the frustratingly slow delivery of the ball to the flippers, after mucking around in the pop bump area, you really have to be on your toes if the ball comes from behind the spinner, as it often slows it right down and is perfectly positioned so it can go, you guessed it, SDTM. This is a prime example of keeping the ball out of trouble. You have to watch and gauge where it's going to send the ball, and often a bit of nudging goes a long way. So there we have it, me hearties. Sinbad and System 1s in a nutshell. Hopefully I've managed to infuse into you some of the joy I get from playing and tinkering around with these orange beauties. Or, for those of you who are new to the silver ball, maybe, just maybe, I've helped you begin your journey down the dizzying and deep rabbit hole into pinball obsession. That is my fervent wish. Thanks for listening. The Pinball Tapes is an original concept written and edited by me, Zach Colligan. The original music in this episode, including the title track, The Octagon and the Saw, were written and played by my band, The Sea Thieves. You can listen and follow The Sea Thieves on Bandcamp, Apple Music, Tidal and Spotify. If you want to get in touch with corrections and comments, you can email me at thepinballtapes at gmail.com. I also can't leave you without shamelessly plugging my wife and I's cafe bar and event space called The Jade. If you like seeing some live music, having a party or simply enjoying an excellent coffee or cold beverage, while playing pinball of course, then come and visit us at 142 to 160 Flinders Street, Adelaide, South Australia. At the time of this recording, the mighty cyclone is on site in our cosy heritage front bar, just waiting for you to experience its kinetic magic. Keep an ear out for future episodes, and I have more games to explore with you. Stay cool, Daddy-O. Zach signing in.